Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Describe for me, what's it like walking into a Sears in 2018? I would quote one of the shoppers that I spoke to for a story recently um, who told me that it was like a ghost town. Haley Peterson is a senior correspondent at Business Insider. She covers retail and has written a lot about the slow downfall of the Sears department stores. She also lives in Richmond, Virginia, and fairly often she walks into the local Sears. Many of the shelves are bare. There are some areas of the store, entire corners that could really be their own standalone store. They're pretty large areas that just have nothing there. No racks, no products, nothing. There's maybe torn up carpet or a um, sign that's long been torn down from the wall that's leaning up against the wall now or ladders, abandoned carts. Haley told me she'd walk past displays for its famous brands like Craftsman and Kenmore. And then she'd see whole areas of the store where sheets were hanging. Whether it's bed sheets or shower curtains to hide some empty areas of the store because they don't want shoppers to see how empty the stores really are. She'd see handwritten sale signs. The handwriting was illegible and the sales that they were advertising made no sense. It would say 17% off, and then the math would be wrong on what the actual price would end up being for certain goods. And it made the store look like it was going out of business, which it wasn't. It was a mess and empty. You'd be hard-pressed to find an employee. And that's not because the employees are off in a back room not doing their jobs. It's because there's typically only two employees in the entire store that has two floors, and it's a giant, sprawling department store. And they're in charge of all these different departments, from apparel to appliances to shoes, you know, everything. Sears' decline took years, some might say decades. But the story of why Sears ended up in bankruptcy is tied up in the story of one reclusive billionaire who took a big bet that failed, even if he benefited himself along the way. From Business Insider and Stitcher, this is Household Name. Brands you can trust. Brands you know, stories you don't. I'm Dan Bobkoff. McDonald's Big Mac. Only 
Today, Sears. For years, it was America's biggest and most famous retailer. But a few years ago, a hedge fund wonderkind named Eddie Lampert took control. At first, it looked like he might breathe some life into Sears. Now, some shareholders and critics don't like how he enriched himself as the company fell. But if he hadn't, would Sears have survived this long? The Eddie Lampert story includes a kidnapping, a yacht, and the world's worst video conference. Stay with us. Why do I shop at Sears? It's easy for me. I can pick up tennis balls, children's clothing, torque wrenches, and a dish all in the same shop. Sears, for America shop. Sears is one of those brands that's been part of the American landscape so long, it feels like it's a given. It's like the definition of mainstream. A store many of us maybe stopped visiting years ago, but still felt comforted that it existed, as it has since 1886. When the Sears bankruptcy was announced, comedian Stephen Colbert tweeted, I'm going to miss Sears, especially on those days when you just want to buy a suit, a carpet, an air conditioner, a lawnmower, a foundation garment, an air hockey table, and a tractor. As Haley Peterson told me, shoppers still remember Sears' heyday. The number one thing that Sears' most loyal shoppers remember is opening up the Sears catalog every year around Christmas time and thumbing through those pages and circling what they wanted to get for the holidays. If you think you know Sears' catalog, wait till you see this. Sears' new spring catalog is hot and cool. Everybody waited for that catalog. At one point, I think it was a 1,000 pages. And Sears dominated this mail-order catalog industry. And uh, so many people say that it was the Amazon of its day back then. Like Amazon, Sears opened distribution centers to speed the products to far-flung parts of America. Rural towns all of a sudden had access to lots of goods at consistent prices. It started selling watches by mail, But by 1900, the Sears catalog was hundreds of pages long, and it sold just about anything you could want. And some things you might not. Silk stockings. Life preservers. Hairbrushes. Electric belts for your body. Windmills. Opium. Arsenic complexion wafers. Drills. Washing machines. Guns. Whole cars. Whole houses. Whole schoolhouses. Cradles. Graves. During the Great Depression, its mostly practical products and good prices made it a success. Sears then helped build the suburbs by providing credit, those whole cars and houses, and even creating all-state insurance. As the suburbs grew after World War II, Sears opened stores in new malls springing up in towns and cities. It was never too far to head to the local Sears to see the new Kenmore dishwashers or buy a suit. It was the only place to buy its own popular brands like Die Hard. They had over 3,000 stores. And um, when I say anchor stores, I mean these are the big, hulking buildings that are at the entrances of shopping malls. They're major traffic drivers, and they're giant spaces, multi-story spaces that really are critical to the survival of many shopping malls. Sears released its final catalog in 1993. By then, Walmart had overtaken Sears as America's biggest retailer. You could see this moment as the beginning of a long end for Sears. But to really understand how Sears ended up in bankruptcy in 2018, you have to get to know Eddie Lampert. 
Eddie Lampert wears a lot of hats. He's a hedge fund owner, a landlord, an investor, a chief executive, and chairman. He's in his 50s now, but in the 80s, he graduated from Yale. Where Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin was his roommate. He worked at Goldman Sachs, and when he was 26, he started his own hedge fund, ESL Investments, which stands for Edward Scott Lampert. 26 is young to start a hedge fund, but Eddie was a star. Year after year, his fund gave investors big returns, like 20%. The Wall Street Journal called him the climber. Businessweek put him on the cover and asked if he's the next Warren Buffett. He made a deal for a store called AutoZone, which sells things like car seat covers and motor oil. Eddie Lampert made a big bet on AutoZone. It was one of his big success stories. He acquired 30% of the company, bought back a ton of stock, which sent share prices soaring, and then eventually sold a stock for $1.5 billion. So he made a lot of money. He made a lot of money. It was a very successful bet. That success caught the attention of Wall Street and of four men in Connecticut. It was the evening in 2003. Welcome back. A bizarre kidnapping over the weekend in Greenwich, Connecticut. Edward Lambert, who is regarded as one of the nation's most successful money managers, was kidnapped on Friday night. Eddie Lampert had just left work. He was walking to his car from his office in Greenwich, Connecticut. One of the wealthiest towns in America. He is listed by Forbes as the 288th wealthiest person in America, the second wealthiest person in Connecticut, worth somewhere around $800 million. His office was in a three-story brick building, a stone's throw from a Tony shopping district. He'd been working on trying to acquire Kmart out of bankruptcy. But as he was about to get into his car... Four men grabbed him and shoved him into an SUV. Confronted and kidnapped uh, in the underground parking garage there in Greenwich, Connecticut. And took him to a day's inn where he was held captive for 28 hours. They blindfolded and handcuffed Eddie. He was told by these men that AutoZone officials, where he was a director at the time, had offered to pay them $3 million to murder him. It was just a story. One of the kidnappers, who was in his early 20s at the time, later told Vanity Fair that he was just looking for local wealthy targets and read about Eddie in the paper. They threatened Lampert repeatedly that they would kill him. They made promises that they wouldn't if they could settle on some sort of amount of money. And ultimately, they settled on a $5 million payoff. The next thing the captors did is kind of baffling. In the middle of the night, they drove Eddie to a highway off-ramp and told him to go get the money. I guess they trusted they were going to get their money. And instead, he walked straight to a police station and sought help. What happened to the kidnappers? The kidnappers were quickly nabbed by police because they took Eddie Lampert's credit card and went on a shopping spree buying about $800 of electronics. These are not very smart criminals. No. I don't know if this was their first job, but it sounds like it probably was. Eddie Lampert almost never speaks about this incident. He told Vanity Fair, quote, I don't really want to talk about it for a lot of reasons, but I know it's not an unimportant event. And it may have affected how he'd later run Sears. Just days after he escaped the kidnappers, Eddie Lampert got the prize he was seeking, Kmart. Through his fund, he bought more than half of the retailer out of bankruptcy and started to turn it around. Then he got a bigger idea. 
he would merge Kmart with one of the most famous retailers in America, Sears. Eddie Lampert didn't really have any experience in retail before coming to Kmart. Not unless you count AutoZone, but a department store is a much different kind of retail. He acquired Kmart out of bankruptcy in 2003, and then it was in 2005 that he orchestrated a merger with Sears to become Sears Holdings. And um, he was chairman of Sears Holdings until 2013, when he became CEO. At first, he looked like a genius. Sears Holdings did really well, and ESL's investment alone was worth $5 billion by 2007. The company was flush with cash and spent billions of dollars buying back its own shares from 2005 through 2012. Some of Eddie Lampert's critics say that the reason that he uh, had interest in Sears was for its many valuable assets from its real estate with all of these big department stores at different shopping malls around the country, as well as its valuable brands such as Kenmore and Craftsman and Die Hard. These are American brands that had been around for decades that had a lot of loyal followers. Right ideas, Kenmore too. Craftsman has the tools for you. There's more for your life. And until the Great Recession, it seemed like a good bet. According to some executives that I've spoken to that were around in the early days, Eddie Lampert had a goal of making Sears a strong retailer to stand on its own. I think at some point during and after the recession, as business was getting pummeled, it seems that he started looking for other ways to extract value from the business. When the recession hit, Sears sales dropped and never really recovered. The last year the company made a profit was 2010. And during this time, Eddie soured on Sears' stores. You might think if you were running a big-name retailer, you'd put money in the stores to make sure they're fully stocked and look clean and fresh. He would argue that there were better uses for the money. So he took Sears cash and he invested in things like share buybacks. And what share buybacks do is essentially increase the value of the shares outstanding. So the company's share price goes up and shareholders of the company benefit. How can you even call a share buyback an investment when all it's really doing is just like this simple math equation where there, where there are fewer shares outstanding so the value goes up, but it's not actually based on, you know, more sales or momentum or anything like that. I just wonder, you know, how how long could that last? I mean, you spend like a few billion dollars in share buybacks, but you're not investing in stores. Like how can that not lead to the decline of this this company? I think it was a successful strategy for him with AutoZone, and so he thought he could do the same thing with Sears. And why didn't it work with Sears? It didn't work with Sears because the lack of investments in the stores was so great that a downturn, a sales downturn happened that was so severe that it, at a certain point, just couldn't be reversed or stopped. And when you're not meeting those basic tenets of a good retail business— It can't survive. It's around this time that Sears and Kmart stores start looking shabby when employees start hanging those sheets to hide the barren shelves. Meanwhile, at Sears headquarters in Illinois, Eddie Lampert was nowhere to be found. That's in a minute.
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back. When people talk about Eddie Lampert, they often use words like reclusive or shy. Lampert rarely speaks publicly. The guy never gives interviews. His spokesperson also did not make him available for this podcast. Some speculate the kidnapping incident made him even more quiet. He lives in a place called Indian Creek Island. It's off the coast of Miami. It's an incredibly private, very wealthy area. It's one of the wealthiest zip codes in the country. It has only about 40 homes on the island, and it's heavily guarded. It has its own private police, and he has a home there that's estimated to be worth about $38 million. Eddie Lampert is also the kind of guy who names his yacht the Fountainhead. Also inspired by Ayn Rand, he divided the company into 30 divisions. Each one had to compete with the others for resources. This proved expensive and inefficient. That's one reason Sears didn't really bounce back from the recession. By 2015, morale at the company's headquarters was low. It didn't help that Lampert was almost never there, in person. Instead, he'd beam in electronically from 1,400 miles away from that mansion on that Florida island. I'm imagining Eddie Lampert on the screen as this kind of menacing big brother, uh, you know, like a larger-than-life face. He's sort of up there on this giant screen at the front of the room, people sitting around a conference table, you know, waiting for him to flash onto the screen. Even some employees at headquarters would refer to him as the Wizard of Oz. In 2015, a few mid-level employees had to gather in a conference room to meet with the wizard of Indian Creek Island. Before Lampert's face appeared on the screen, a manager rushed into the room with a huge chart pad. He had written three words on the chart, and he said, uh, do not say these words. One of the words on the chart was consumer. Apparently, Eddie Lampert hates the word consumer. And he prefers that employees refer to customers as members. When Eddie appeared on the screen, he was sitting behind a desk at home, which had the Sears logo on it. If any of those words were uttered in front of him, then the presenters could, as what was told to me, get shredded by Lampert. He apparently had frequent tirades that had fostered this climate of fear among the company's most senior managers, according to sources that spoke to me. After this tense meeting with Eddie on the screen, one executive decided to quit. 
He became one of dozens who've left in recent years. One of the reasons Eddie would flip out over the word consumer, why he wanted customers to be called members, is that he had become obsessed with a pet project. Shop Your Way was Eddie's big idea for Sears' online business. Eddie had stopped investing real money in stores, but he did spend a lot on Shop Your Way. This was his bet that Sears could compete with Amazon. It's a loyalty program that he hoped that he would get all of Sears customers to sign up for, hand over their information, and in that way he would sort of build up this community, this online community of shoppers where he had access to all their former purchases and their information, sort of like what Amazon's done with Amazon Prime. And their social networking part of the program where members can see and comment on products that their friends have liked or purchased. So it's sort of like a Facebook for shopping in that way. Eddie wanted customers to set up profiles and talk about products. I think one of the problems with Shop Your Way is that a lot of Sears customers are um, from an older demographic and didn't really find a lot of value in an online network like this. Did anybody use the social network? Some people did, but when I went on it and sort of looked at what kind of activity was happening, I saw a lot of Sears executives commenting and being involved in the network. And I heard that Eddie Lampert sort of made it a point to really tell Sears employees, like, you have to really get involved and shop your way if other people are going to do it. You could go on the site and find one user named Eli Wexler leaving reviews and asking questions on various products. Turns out Eli Wexler was an imposter. Eli Wexler is a pseudonym that Bloomberg reported in 2013 is Lampert himself. And in February of 2016, Lampert, presumably posting as Wexler, clicked on a pair of boxing gloves and posed the question, does anybody have these? Will it protect my hands since I punch very hard? Lampert kept putting money into Shop Your Way and not into Sears stores. Stores then had fewer and fewer employees. At the same time, cashiers were forced to try to convert customers into Shop Your Way members. Sometimes the signups took so long that long lines would form. And at times when you're dealing with labor cuts, there's not somebody else to take another register. And then you've got some customers abandoning carts because they can't find anybody to check them out in a timely manner. And so this sort of all contributed to some of Sears' problems in stores. He really hates those stores, doesn't he? I think he maybe pushed Sears to go online maybe a few years too early or something because, I mean, he had the right idea investing in online, but maybe the equation of investments in stores versus online just wasn't quite right or maybe he was a little before his time. Eddie used to talk about wanting Sears to be what he calls an asset-like company. But Sears is not some app. It has a lot of assets, big stores, inventory, brands like Kenmore and Craftsman. He's publicly compared Sears' strategy to Apple's and Microsoft's. And he said that Sears trying to meet new customer needs and has said that it's like Uber and Amazon and Tesla. On what grounds? Like, like what does Sears, even in that period, have in common with Apple or Uber? You know, I think you'd have to ask Eddie Lampert that because <laughs> I don't have a lot of evidence to make that argument for him. Eddie used to complain that Sears would get more scrutiny from Wall Street because it's not a tech company. And I just, I can't get over the fact that he just never seemed to change course. Like, even in this situation, obviously the social network wasn't catching on, but it was also making things even worse in the stores. Is he just stubborn? I think 
Maybe his idea of an asset light organization is a Sears that one day doesn't have any stores at all. And that's ultimately maybe where he sees the company surviving and he couldn't get there fast enough before the company had to declare for bankruptcy. I mean, they've closed half their stores, more than half their stores in the last five years. Maybe he'll go back to just being a catalog. It's possible. I've been asked, you know, what could Sears look like if it emerges, you know, from bankruptcy and in it might look very different than the company that we see today. Eddie ran Sears as it tumbled, but he's also a hedge fund guy. So did he benefit as Sears declined? That's in a minute. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back. Eddie Lampert has figured out a way to make gains even when Sears loses. All the while Eddie Lampert was chairman and CEO of Sears, he was still running the hedge fund that bears his initials, ESL. It's really difficult to untangle the web of businesses that Lampert has created that prop up and benefit off of Sears. On the one hand, Eddie through ESL loaned a lot of money to Sears over the years. Those billions kept the company afloat. He also earns a lot of interest from Sears on those loans. And those loans are also backed with Sears' assets and real estate. And it also puts him among the first in line to be paid as a creditor of the company in the event of a bankruptcy. This doesn't necessarily mean that a bankruptcy benefits him more than had Sears turned into a healthy retailer. But it means that he's found ways to gain no matter what happens to Sears. It gets more complicated. At the same time, he's created and spun off Seritage Growth Properties, and this happened in 2015. Seritage. Eddie created Seritage as a real estate investment trust. He orchestrated a plan where Sears would sell Seritage a few hundred of its best stores and then pay it rent. Seritage also makes money not only off the rent that Sears pays, but over time, the whole plan for Seritage is that it takes over space in Sears stores, whether wholly outright by the store closing or little bit at a time, meaning Sears will close its second floor and Seritage will put another retailer in there like a home goods. Eddie runs Seritage and Sears, so he could close the Sears store and rent it to a Zara or a Whole Foods for four times as much. How is this okay? This seems like the biggest conflict of interest I've ever heard. So at the time that this deal was created, it gave Sears a sort of lifeline 
um, which is how Eddie Lampert's kept this company going for so long because he keeps coming up with these ways of infusing cash into the business at times when everybody thinks it's about to go dead. A spokesman for ESL told us, quote, We have consistently been committed to following transparent procedures that ensure that any transaction with ESL takes place on fair and reasonable terms. He added that this kind of real estate arrangement isn't unique to Seritage and Sears. But this arrangement also meant that some Sears stores that previously never had to pay rent had another expense each month, and that could be the difference between a profit and a loss. A group of shareholders actually sued Lampert, ESL, and members of Sears' board of directors over the Seritage deal, claiming that it stripped Sears' holdings of its best assets to enrich Lampert and his hedge fund. The lawsuit said that the Sears stores were worth far more than $2.7 billion, and that Lampert, by standing on both sides of the transaction, stood to benefit regardless. The lawsuit was later settled for $40 million, with a defendant saying the settlement was not an admission that the lawsuit's claims were valid. A judge said it wasn't clear whether the deal unfairly benefited Lampert. But now the deals are facing new scrutiny from others. So I know he's a hedge fund guy, but it sounds like he's literally hedging his own bets here. I think that's pretty astute. I think he really had the intent originally to revive Sears' business and really make it a great retailer. But as that looked increasingly uncertain, he started looking for other ways to either hedge his bets or just extract value from the company, even if the retail side of it didn't necessarily survive or thrive the way he wanted it to. You could argue that Sears wouldn't have survived this long without the cash Eddie and ESL injected into the business. He told Jim Stewart of the New York Times recently that he's taken a big personal hit from Sears's fall and bankruptcy. Not just in money, but time, he said, adding, there's been an enormous opportunity cost. As for whether Eddie Lampert is the sole reason for Sears' demise, I think there were a lot of different factors putting a lot of pressure on Sears. I don't think that he helped the company by reducing investments in stores at times when they needed it the most. Sears filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That means it's reorganizing rather than liquidating like Toys R Us did when it abruptly shut down. After the bankruptcy, Eddie Lampert stepped down as CEO. Sears has just about 700 stores left, down from nearly 4,000 at its peak. If more close, hundreds of jobs will be lost. As we learned in our Macy's episode, malls that lose a Sears can see their own decline, though healthier malls may be more than ready to replace it with something more exciting, like a Whole Foods. I think there's two sides to the story. I think you could say that Eddie Lampert is to blame for the decline of Sears or that he's the reason why it's stayed alive this long. I think that some people will argue that he stripped the company of its most prized assets, its real estate, its brands um, that had the most value. And all that's left is an ailing retail business. It's been almost unbelievable how he's been able to find all these different ways to plug these holes and find lifelines over and over and over for the company when every year there's been speculation that it's going to file for bankruptcy. He has found a way to keep it alive. And so I wouldn't be surprised if he again finds a way to help it emerge from bankruptcy. What have you felt and learned just through all the reporting you've done on Sears over the years? What are you left with? 
I think a lot of people feel really a lot of nostalgia about the decline of Sears, and they don't want to see this once great American retailer die. And I think um, it's been really interesting to learn about how much an American company can really be woven into the lives of uh, so many shoppers, so much to the point where they feel so much emotion about seeing this happen, this sort of slow death happen to a brand that they grew up with. There's more for your life and There's more for your life. Haley Peterson is a senior correspondent here at Business Insider. It's time now for product misplacement. This is the part of the show where we get to hear from you about how brands have affected your life. A couple of months ago, we did an episode about the real Charles Shaw, whose name is on the famous two-buck chuck wine at Trader Joe's. Caitlin Harper from Brooklyn, New York, heard that and sent us her own two-buck chuck story. I got married at the end of September 2012. We had a city hall marriage. Um, My husband's English, so his work visa was running out over the summer. And he was like, "Uh, if you like want you can marry me and come somewhere in the world where I get a job and I was like okay (laughs) that's great so yeah he got a job in Vancouver Canada on my birthday actually at the end of August so he was like let's get married and go live in Vancouver for however long we're there and I was like all right great so we were like, all right, we want to get married, but we definitely want to have a party because we're crazy. So I want to talk about the party. So yeah, the you party. get married in September. Yes. You have, have party, a party in October. How much mm-hmm. notice did you give your friends? I sent everyone a, like a Facebook message basically being like, this is going down in two weeks. So we did that. My godparents gave us like $250 and I was like, okay, this is the party money. Like that's all we have for a party. So we had it at an art space that I volunteered at. So that was free. I worked at a bakery for a really long time, and my old boss made us cupcakes for free. So that was, I had a cupcake tree cake. And then I was like, all right, all that's left is food and alcohol. So we did the Trader Joe's wine thing because Charles Shaw's stuff had been like the two buck, three buck chuck has always been like a big deal in our lives. So how many bottles did you get with a $250 budget? I think we had like 45 or 50 people. I didn't think that we needed like one bottle per person, but we did. So that was intense. Just walking in and seeing like 50 bottles of wine, which again, it only cost $3. So (laughs) it's not a big deal. Everyone had like their own bottle all night, like multiple bottles that belonged to only them. So there's like pictures and pictures and pictures, like no one's holding wine glasses. Everyone's actually holding entire bottles of wine, which is probably not healthy. What was the party like? It was awesome. And then we actually had to go back and clean up after the party in the morning because there was going to be yoga there at noon because it's this, like, community space. So the entire floor, it was, like, this really, like, nice honey-colored wood. It was black because so much wine had been spilled on the floor and, like, stepped in. And I was still in my, like, cocktail fake wedding dress, and it had ripped all the way up the leg from dancing. So I walked back in the morning with Martin 
to like actually get down on the ground and like clean the wine off of the floor. You didn't change first? Um, No. In my head, I was like, the only thing that's here is like Martin's clothes. Like we were at his apartment. I probably could have changed in like some of his stuff. But then I was like, what's weirder for me to like walk around in like boys basketball shorts or this like horrible dress? And then as soon as I got outside in the sunlight, I was like, this dress, this dress is worse. But it didn't matter. It was too late. What do you feel thinking back to that night? Really, it was really fun and amazing. I mostly remember the cleaning up aspect because it was so horrific. But like that night was great. The whole day of, I actually made like all the canapes for the event. So I made like 200 little like bites. And my sister had to like throw me in the shower because it was like six o'clock and I was still like filling these canapé things that I had handmade all day for my own like marriage party. So I showed up, yeah, with like 200 canapés. We had to get one of those like little old lady like carts, grocery carts and throw all the wine in there and bring it over in like four different trips. Have your wine tastes changed at all? They have. I'm a lot fancier now, probably more just because more money and like being more of a foodie and stuff. But I don't think I ever would have, like, had wine as a choice. Like, I'm very much like a beer and whiskey person. But Pinot Grigio is still probably my favorite white wine because that is the wine that I always drank from Trader Joe's. Like, because it was a little bit sweeter, but not as sweet as the Riesling. I didn't drink Chardonnay for years because the (laughs) Charles Shaw Chardonnay is not that great. And now I drink it more often. But, yeah, I used to drink, like, I only—I don't even want to know how much— Pinot Grigio and Charles Shaw Malot. Like, those two. I always have bottles in my house. Like, oh, my God. If you could do your wedding the same way you did it in 2012, would you still have Two Buck Chuck there? I definitely would. I'm a very nostalgic person. It's good. There's no reason not to drink it. So I would do it the exact same way. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Has a brand played an important role in a moment in your life? Tell us your product misplacement story. You can record it straight into your phone and then email householdname at businessinsider.com or you can call 7313brands and leave a voicemail with your story. And if you missed it and want to know more about the famous wine at Caitlin's wedding reception, check out our episode about the real Charles Shaw behind Two Buck Chuck. Scroll back for the No Buck Chuck episode in your household name feed. And while you're at it, we encourage you to give a listen to some of our other episodes you may have missed. We have conspiracy theories about Mattress Firm, an investigation into Starbucks' basic pumpkin spice latte, and a trip to one of the last blockbusters in the U.S. Oh, and don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a five-star review. This episode was produced by Amy Padula, Anna Mazarakis, and me with Sarah Wyman. Our editor is Gianna Palmer. Sound design and original music by Casey Holford and John Delore. The executive producers of Household Name are Chris Bannon, Laura Mayer, Jenny Radelet, and me. Special thanks to Caitlin Foster, Clancy Morgan, Jen Nguyen, Rich Filoni, Corey Proton, Lauren Thompson, and CNBC. Household Name is a production of Insider Audio. Stitcher.